The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominic Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what will be a really interesting discussion on drivers of burnout among critical care providers. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Nuj Mehta as our guest, and we'll be discussing his article published in CHEST entitled, Drivers of Burnout Among Critical Care Providers, a Multi-Center Mixed Method Study. Anuj, thanks for joining us. Uh, Can you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Anuj Mehta. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Colorado, and I do uh, my clinical work at Denver Health and Hospital Authority, which is a safety net institution in the heart of Denver, Colorado. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, and we'll be discussing a really important topic um, that's rather pertinent uh, given uh, the COVID pandemic that has raged for the last two years. We'll be discussing burnout and what is it and why are critical care practitioners at risk? Um, so Anuj, what is burnout and uh, why do you think critical care practitioners are at particular risk? Sure. I think it's uh, it's really important to start with our definitions. And burnout has been defined in a lot of different ways over time. I think the technical definition is a state of emotional, mental, or physical exhaustion brought on by prolonged or repeated stresses at work. And I think that's an important distinction, is that this is work-related burnout. And especially during the pandemic, I think people have experienced burnout in other areas of their life. Um, And the pandemic has actually um, really blurred the lines between where work burnout uh, exists and home life burnout or pandemic burnout exists. But the study that we conducted was pre-pandemic and was exclusively focused on people's burnout that they were experiencing at work in an ICU setting. And then we know that um, physicians, nurses, uh, respiratory therapists, uh, folks who are working in the hospital have been experienced to numerous stresses even before the pandemic occurred. Um, What was unique about the COVID pandemic uh, that put them at risk? Yeah, I think it's, I think you highlighted a really critical uh, um, point is that the quote-unquote, pandemic of burnout existed before the COVID-19 pandemic. There were studies pre-burnout, excuse me, pre-pandemic, that uh, indicated that upwards of 60 to 80 percent of critical care nurses experienced at least some symptoms of burnout, and critical care physicians uh, had the highest levels of burnout of any medical subspecialty. So burnout has been with, uh, been in the ICU for a long time, and it was progressively getting worse. And then we experienced the pandemic. And the pandemic, I think, even now, we don't fully, we haven't fully dealt with all the issues that the pandemic has caused in terms of worsening burnout. 
I think that burnout is distinct from mental health issues, although there's an overlap. And I think that that overlap has probably uh, grown during the pandemic, as we've seen a lot more critical care practitioners, nurses, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, um, physicians, uh, experiencing more levels of depression, anxiety, uh, and, and soon to be PTSD as we move out of the last wave of, uh, of burnout, excuse me, of the pandemic. So I think that the pandemic, due to the high intensity of work, the high mortality rate, as well as the long duration have made burnout uh, a much bigger issue than it was before, and it was already a big issue. I think one of the under-recognized areas, and this goes into the findings of my studies, is I do think the pandemic has worsened some of the team dynamics and hospital culture uh, that we identified as two major drivers of burnout even before the pandemic. Those are all very important factors that you bring up, uh, Anuj. Maybe you could just also comment on um, institutional support um, and uh, patient factors that may contribute to burnout? Yeah, so I think that the pre-existing literature before our study uh, did a couple of things. One was there were multiple studies that identified that burnout was high across multiple medical specialties, including critical care, and those were mostly survey-based work. And then um, there were some other studies that looked at certain types of interventions, whether it be support groups or resiliency, and they were typically targeted at single inter individual practitioner types, so just at nurses or just at physicians. What we did in our study was really try and uh, bring together uh, the multidisciplinary team that we rely on in the ICU for clinical care. And what we, what we looked at through both surveys and um, through interviews were um, the multiple factors that were potentially contributing to burnout, trying to identify commonalities. And I think that there are definitely patient level factors. And th that was one of the key findings that we had was that patient factors, both with acuity of illness, but also um, around areas of futility and patient families um, were major drivers. And, and let me describe that a little bit. So across the board, whether it be physicians, nurses, um, respiratory therapists, everyone acknowledged that the reason that they got into critical care medicine was for the high acuity patients. And helping somebody come in who is extremely sick, uh, you know, maybe with sepsis, maybe with ARDS, and seeing them recover, uh, was um, was reaffirming to the reason that they entered critical care. So the acuity itself wasn't the driver of burnout. But what everyone experienced was the, the struggle that they had when they recognized that a patient was not going to recover and the ongoing care that sometimes is provided in those settings, either driven by um, the patient's wishes or the family's wishes. And while everybody recognizes that we need patient-centered care and patients have autonomy, it was emotionally very difficult for all of our critical care providers to continue to provide care in situations where they felt it was futile. Another patient-level factor that was highlighted uh, across all of our um, uh, across all of our uh, provider types was the issue of patient families. And oftentimes the ongoing uh, high intensity care that was being provided in situations where uh, the practitioners felt that care was essentially futile was being driven by family members who may not fully understand what was happening or may just have a big disconnect with the likelihood of somebody recovering. The other issue around patient families was, um, and we've seen this worsen during the pandemic is uh, abusive and disrespectful family members. The idea of, you know, when, when anybody, a nurse, physician, a respiratory therapist shows up in the ICU to provide care, we put everything on the table. We, we put our emotions, we put our 
our uh, physical being when we're doing procedures, our mental energy, our emotional energy on the table to, to help people. And when that was attacked or demeaned by family members, it was a major driver of burnout. And I think those are the patient factors that really contributed. And in the past, there's been speculation that the high acuity and the high mortality rate was why critical care was uh, critical care practitioners were particularly uh, susceptible to burnout. But in fact, what we tended to find was that type of high acuity reaffirmed people's desire to be in the ICU, but that it was when it transitioned from high acuity to more futile care that was you know, potentially a more unique aspect of why critical care in the, uniquely is susceptible. Um, you also have the idea of institutional support. And I think that one of the other areas that we found was that hospital culture, and that can be defined in a lot of different ways, was a, was a different di- driver of burnout. And, and I'd you know, be interested to know a little bit more what you're, what you're asking around that um, institutional support question. Sure. So at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, um, uh, there was certainly a delay uh, in getting uh, protective uh, equipment to staff. Um, and then also in terms of the rollout of vaccines at some institutions um, and some providers, some nurses, uh, some respiratory therapists um, were concerned uh, that there was delay in the in certain institutions in ensuring that they were safe to uh, perform their um, responsibilities. And then also uh, subsequent to that, um, uh, the issue of uh, folks are in a high-intensity uh, environment They don't feel that they are receiving adequate reimbursement. They feel that there were a lot of so-called pizza parties where uh, they they felt that management were providing um, pizzas or uh, donuts uh, as a form of uh, acknowledging the work that they were doing when, and they felt uh, unacknowledged in that way. Uh, Did you find that in your study? Yeah, I think that that's a really critical part of the hospital culture aspect. Um, And, and, you know, to to just kind of, talk about high-level findings from our study, we really identify three key drivers of burnout. There was patient factors, there was team dynamics, and then there there were hospital culture issues. And each of these were core themes that emerged from the qualitative interviews that we did. And again, you know, our study was pre-pandemic, so I can't provide insight on um, the impact of delays in PPE or shortages in PPE or the vaccine rollout. But I think there's a lot of corollary when you talk about kind of the pizza and the donut party and that disconnect between what people are experiencing on the front lines and what management is providing for support. And, and there was a very common theme within the hospital culture domain that we identified of this idea of increased corporate structures and increased corporate culture in healthcare settings where Corporate demands and regulatory demands, such as documentation um, and, uh, and 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 other um, requirements from hospital administration that were designed to meet either financial bottom lines or regulatory bottom lines, were superseding the needs of patient care, and that disconnect was often driven by the fact that the decisions were being made by people that were never seen on the front lines, never seen in the ICU. Um, and and um, thank yous, this was specifically mentioned, actually, thank yous often were in the form of food rather than more substantial support 
that could either reduce the regulatory demands, reduce the documentation needs, um, or fundamentally change that idea or that perception that decisions were being driven by the bottom line rather than patient care goals. So we definitely found that. And I think that's one of the uh, key things that despite the fact that our study was done pre-pandemic, I think it really does provide a lot of insight in how to think about the uh, evolving nature of burnout that we've seen during the pandemic. Bernard, you've highlighted two of the three core themes so far, uh, the patient factors, the hospital culture. Maybe you could uh, dive into uh, the team dynamics. What did you find in your study that contributed to burnout amongst team dynamics? Yeah, and this is, this is I think, something that was highly unique uh, with our study. So um, there have been a few small qualitative studies that have looked at burnout across different medical subspecialty fields. Um, and there's been a lot of work on burnout in critical care prior to our study. Again, as I said, most of them can work, uh, consisted of surveys or were intervention trials aimed at a specific target population, whether it be physicians, nurses, um, and rarely were respiratory therapists or pharmacists or any, any other uh, field involved. But we know that good critical care requires a multidisciplinary approach. I'm a practicing critical care physician, and when I round in the morning, it's with residents, it's with the nurses at the bedside, it's with our respiratory therapists, our social workers, our care managers, our pharmacists. Um, it's a big team that walks around our ICU, and that is critical to high-quality um, critical care. And one of the things that we found in our study and that makes it unique was we included all sorts of different uh, provider types, whether it be nurses, physicians, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, social workers, care managers, they were all invited to participate. So we were really able to dive deep in some of the team dynamic areas. We segregated our interviews. So interviews were just among nurses or just among physicians so that people felt uh, free to speak about whatever issues were contributing to their burnout, but um, we were able to analyze the data and compare and contrast what the different themes were across the different groups. And it was fascinating that really, regardless of the per, um, individual job description, people had very similar feelings of feeling disrespected um, within the team. So nurses felt disrespected by physicians and sometimes respiratory therapists. Respiratory therapists felt um, disrespected by physicians and sometimes nurses. And physicians uh, oftentimes felt disrespected by nurses when they were trying to execute a decision that maybe the, the, uh, the nursing team didn't agree with. And this oftentimes was, um, when it boiled down to it, was poor communication. And there were multiple drivers of that. Part of it was the electronic medical record where some of our um, older participants remembered when they would want to do something, they would have to call the physician, have a conversation, the physician would come to the bedside, they'd have a conversation, and then an order would be written at the bedside. Versus now, messages were being sent electronically, uh, orders are being placed into the computer, and there was never a conversation uh, between the different provider types. And they viewed that as a big breakdown in some of those team dynamics. And those team dynamics, that interplay between physicians, respiratory therapists, and nurses, and that oftentimes the, uh, the not ill will, but some of the residual um, poor feelings that can um, come about from uh, poor interactions uh, really affected people's day-to-day uh, -day jobs. 
And it, one of the things we found was burnout was highly infectious. And it's interesting to think about, you know, an infectious pandemic. Well, I describe burnout in a very similar way. When the attending physician, and this is, this was echoed in a lot of the quotes from our qualitative data, when the attending physician was burnt out, they would act in a certain way, and that would trickle down to the nurses that day, um, or vice versa. If the nurse for a given patient was burnt out, everybody that interacted with that patient, all the other provider types, um, would feel that burnout and potentially respond in kind. Um, and, and that was a very complex dynamic that I think has uh, not necessarily been recognized in the past because the data has been limited to single provider type studies. Uh, as w- And interventions that have been tried to reduce burnout have always focused on a single provider type. And since burnout is so infectious, even if you fix burnout amongst physicians, they are likely to get reinfected if the nurses remain burnt out or, or, or vice versa. And this has a really big interplay into what's happened during the pandemic. And I can speak mostly from personal experience, but I've worked in several hospitals during the pandemic. And one of the things that I've seen is that our communication has really broken down. Whereas pre-pandemic, when we would round as an interdisciplinary team, a multidisciplinary team, we would be either outside the patient's room or inside the patient's room, and the nurse would be there, the respiratory therapist would be there, and we'd all be talking and come up with a plan together. Unfortunately, because of the PPE requirements and people's fear of going into uh, a COVID patient's room, what we ended up seeing and what I experienced a lot was that the nurse might be in full PPE taking care of the patient inside the room, and we were forced to round outside the room, or the nurse would be in with a different patient, and they couldn't step out easily because of the donning and doffing requirements. And as such, the communication between the uh, medical team and the, um, the the physician team and the nursing team really broke down. Um, and we saw very similar issues with respiratory therapists who were overtaxed and seen when we saw huge increases in the number of ventilated patients, that they oftentimes couldn't be right at the bedside when we came up with a respiratory therapy plan. Moreover, they couldn't go into the room as frequently as, say, the physicians would want um, to, you know, I might decrease the FiO2 on an intubated patient every couple of hours in the hope in the in the weaning process, and that just wasn't feasible for the respiratory therapist with the donning and doffing requirements. So we saw a real breakdown in team communication during the pandemic. My personal experience and what's been echoed to me by many colleagues, and I think that's going to be something we're going to have to think about in the future and work on rebuilding um, that idea of, of uh, broader inner and multidisciplinary communication. So I think team dynamics are something that is highly unique to the ICU because not every medical service works on a multidisciplinary um, uh, team structure, but the ICU does. And we know that that's beneficial to patient care. Um, and, uh, you know, our, t- our study was unique in being able to highlight that as a key driver. Yeah, I think that was one of the really important factors about your study that you interviewed um, uh, physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, uh, case managers. You got a global perspective on all uh, the folks that are taking care of the patient and that you also explored uh, the hospital culture and the patient uh, interactions avenue. So, Anuj, this obviously begs the question, um, this obviously was occurring before the pandemic. I think the, the pandemic has just highlighted or brought to the fore um, uh, the, the, the issues that were previously there. How do we address it? Um, how do we address um, uh, team factors, hospital culture, um, uh, patient issues? Um, 
reading in between the lines and listening to what's happening on social media, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, a, a lot of patients receive a lot of uh, incorrect information about drugs such as ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, and that obviously contributed to um, uh, the point actions between practitioners and patients. Um, there's also a lot of uh, mistrust uh, in the medical community um, about vaccination. How does one address this issue? It's obviously a phenomenally huge issue. Um, how do we solve it? Oh, I wish I had an easy answer. Um, I think first is defining the problem. And I think our study um, in the mixed methods area of it uh, was um, highly unique in defining the scope of the problem. And, and let me clarify what I mean there. So in most burnout studies and in our study, the way burnout is measured is something called the Maslach Burnout Inventory. It's a psychometric validated tool that has a specific um, version for health professionals, healthcare workers. And so we use that and we can break down um, across the three psychological domains that have classically been defined within burnout, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and lack of personal achievement. We can score people according to that. And so this is the quantitative survey data we got. Um, and what we found was that there were high proportions of people with moderate and high levels of burnout. But when we asked people, how burnt out do you feel, most practitioners had low to moderate self-reported burnout. And I think that's really critical is that despite the fact that in a psychometric assessment, people were scoring very high, their self-reported burnout was actually moderate to low which means people don't have a great deal of insight into their own burnout. So defining the problem is the first step and recognizing that, you know, if you have purely voluntary interventions, you know, a lot of um, hospitals have um, psychological support teams. And they say, if you have a problem, please call. You're a healthcare worker. We want to take care of you. Call us. Well, that really requires somebody to self-recognize their own burnout. And our study shows that we're actually pretty poor at that. Um, and similarly, I think across those three levels of um, the three domains of burnout, you know, we were able to link it to our qualitative themes in a very rich way um, that I think gives us some insight. So the issues you raised around ivermectin and um, vaccination and hydroxychloroquine and all the misinformation out there, I think is contributing a lot to patient factors, um, patient drivers of burnout. And I've experienced this myself with patients who I am intubating who refuse to allow me to use the word COVID because they don't believe it's a real disease or family members who refuse to believe um, that uh, vaccination would have helped their loved one. You know, obviously we're not getting into fights with patients about this, but, you know, when we're having a family meeting, that oftentimes is the source for family members to vent their frustration at the medical field. And, and we become the victims um, in those family meetings. So it's a struggle. Um, and, and I don't have a great idea. Um, you know, what you, what you raise in terms of these patient level factors, whether it's ivermectin or vaccination, I mean, we're seeing that play out across the site. It's not unique to healthcare, although I think healthcare workers are um, one of the core sets of victims um, in terms of uh, the side effects. Obviously, the primary victims are the people that um, are, are um, have toxicity from ivermectin or choose not to get vaccinated and then suffer from COVID with long-term um, long-term issues. But I think that um, the uh, healthcare workers in that setting are the are the secondary victims because we're forced to deal with all this. We're we're forced to deal with the aftermath of all this misinformation. I think this is really important in terms of driving burnout 
is the moral distress that comes from uh, caring for so much, so many people that are the victims of disinformation. And I have colleagues who are very rational people who in their own privacy or in private conversations express such anger about having to take care of people who chose not to get vaccinated, who filled our ICUs for a while. Um, and I think that uh, it's going to take a lot more ongoing conversation. And that's a societal level healing uh, factor that I honestly don't know how to address. And I'm never going to claim to be smart enough to come up with solutions. But I do think we need to start that conversation. I think team dynamics is, is an area where there's potentially a lot of room for improvement. You know, the medical field, I think, uh, is, um, is, 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 has been really poor to innovate, um, really slow to innovate. We operate with, um, old technology. We operate with old EMR systems. You know, we don't innovate or incorporate newer technologies nearly as fast as other fields. And similarly, we don't learn from other fields in areas where we could shore up some of, I think, the, um, the primary issues that we're seeing with burnout and, and specifically about team building activities. There is data in the corporate world that multidisciplinary team building events create, improves um, cohesion, improves efficiency um, across multiple fields like advertising and consultancy services. And, and we know that um, team building events and retreats and things like that are uh, big money makers. Actually, it's a big industry where people either offer coaching to multidisciplinary teams in the business world or offer, um, you know, something as simple as like a ropes course or, or outdoor activities and things like that to get people from different teams to work together and trust each other. We do nothing of the sort in, in, in healthcare. Um, I, uh, I am friends with so many of my ICU, um, so many of my ICU nurses and, and, and other colleagues. Um, and sometimes we might get together outside of work um, on a social level, but there's never been, I've, I've never seen a concerted effort to foster cross, um, cross team, cross uh, provider type um, uh, work and um, uh, cooperation uh, for, that's sponsored by the institution. And what, the, what could that be? That could be a day where um, travelers are brought in for a couple of days and, and the nurses and the physicians um, go uh, on a day retreat go on a hike, uh, do a roads course to build um, more um, uh, respect and trust between each other. And, and that would carry over into the um, everyday's work, or everyone's work day um, when they're caring for patients. And sometimes it's as simple as just knowing somebody's name um, that you're more likely to learn if you're spending more time with them over the course of the day. Um, and so I think some of these core team, team building, team dynamics, I think those are interventions that we can take from other fields. And I think that there's a really ripe area that hospitals should want to invest in uh, to do so. And they're not, um, you know, these aren't things where we need to pay every single person um, $100,000 more a year, although I think that would help some people. But I think the other thing we've learned from the pandemic is that money is not the solution to burnout um, in all situations. So I think there's a lot we can do on team dynamics. I think we have done almost nothing uh, from a um, from the entire healthcare field to build those um, team dynamic interventions. And most of the time, when it comes up, it's when there's conflict. We need conflict resolution. We need um, uh, a path to report somebody to HR because there's miscommunication or there was a bad event or something, um, or it's uh, in an M and M setting with people taking the defensive posture as opposed to 
proactive um, team building events. And I think that's where we need to think about um, moving, not just this idea of like, oh, yeah, go out, have drinks, but something far more concrete that utilizes pre-existing literature from other fields. I think from a hospital culture, there are two areas. One is what do we change about the dynamics between leadership and um, and, and the frontline workers? And two is the broader issue of the corporate um the shift towards a corporate culture within healthcare systems. That's a larger fundamental healthcare issue that we're dealing with. We're seeing that triple, uh, trickle across the issues with travelers that we've seen with pan- um, the pandemic. Um, and I don't think I have a great uh, handle on that. But on the other side of it, how can we improve communication between um, uh, hospital leadership and um, frontline IC workers? Well, you know, I think that, uh, you know, as people are promoted through um, a hospital administrative structure. Oftentimes, um, clinical people are promoted based on their clinical acumen without appropriate training um, for administration or management. And so that's one thing I think that when people have better training, they make better decisions for the people that they represent. But I also think that as clinicians are promoted through the ranks, they spend less and less time interacting with their um, clinical teams. And, um, and And that's out of necessity, right? It's hard to be on service for a week when you're a chief medical officer for a massive hospital system. That being said, when you spend no clinical time dealing with some of the, you know, on the um, frontline issues, um, then uh, you're, you're, you're not able to necessarily fully appreciate the uh, troubles that your teams are, are dealing with. And so I think one, a simple thing would be to in, improve and increase the amount of time that, um, hospital leadership are spending in clinical areas and interacting with frontline clinicians and to create a more open dialogue between the two. There were several times, so during the pandemic, I also um, spent a lot of time advising the state, uh, uh, the state of Colorado. I was the chair for the Colorado's Crisis Standards of Care um, uh, working group and drafted our Crisis Standards of Care um, uh, documents for the state, as well as we were unique in cr- coming up with healthcare staffing crisis standards of care as well, which we did implement. And one of the things that was pretty obvious was that there was oftentimes a disconnect between frontline workers and uh, hospital executives, and that frontline workers were afraid to express um, their real feelings about how things were ha- going in the hospital for fear of retaliation. Um, and, and that's, that's a problem. And so there needs to be better lines of communication between hospital administration and frontline workers such that real problems, sometimes small things, are able to be communicated up through the chain effectively without fear of retaliation. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, when you have an executive meeting with, say, critical care nurses um, twice a year, all that comes in those one-hour meetings are the big issues. And maybe those big issues like, you know, scheduling or whatever might be, might have some shift from the small meetings, but the small things, the, the, the thousand cuts that happen every single day, those rarely get addressed in that meeting. And that can only happen through increased and ongoing conversations. Um, and, and these are, these are time intensive and resource intensive um, areas, but, you know, with the current um, estimates that, um, you know, there are estimates that one out of five um, physicians are thinking about leaving the field, upwards of 30% of nurses are thinking about leaving the field. Um, 
due to burnout and mental distress due to the pandemic, I think this is where we have to invest a ton of our resources. So, Anuji, you mentioned that there's been a big drain um, out of the healthcare professions, uh, both in physicians and nurses, and that identifying burnout is really important. Um, one strategy that uh, hospital administration or uh, clinicians may employ is to do these wellness surveys or um, assess burnout amongst their group. Um, but uh, my understanding over the last year or two is that sometimes those surveys have been over-administered um, and have actually contributed to burnout. Well, what is your take on that? I think it's difficult to um, administer surveys without knowing what the solutions might might be. So I, there, I think there are two things. One, I think actually in a lot of settings, there's been hesitancy to administer or truly measure burnout on an institutional level, partially because um, um, because it, once you identify the problem and you have concrete numbers around it, you have to do something about it. It's also, if it's well known that one hospital has higher burnout levels than another, they become less competitive in the job market. And during our study, there were um, hospitals that we approached that did not want to participate. Um, they did not want to measure. They did not want us talking to their healthcare workers um, to really understand what some of the drivers of burnout were. So I do want to say that, well, I think in the last year, some of these wellness surveys may have increased. Um, I think that there is a hesitancy amongst healthcare institutions to acknowledge this as a problem. Um, and, and that may be going down now because it's impossible not to acknowledge, but pre-pandemic, there was a lot of hesitancy um, and there was a, um, a lot of resistance to um, widespread institutional assessments of burnout um, across an entire field. The issue with wellness surveys in the last year is I don't think they're inherently bad. I don't think they inherently contribute to burnout. But when you continue to ask people what's wrong and you get consistent answers and you do nothing or have nothing to offer them, um, to improve the situation, that causes frustration. So if you constantly ask people what would make their workday better and, and say it's to a group of nurses and they report having one less shift um, a month would be useful. And I'm just making something up here, but saying just one less shift so they can have take a mental health day. And that never materializes and it's a consistent message, message across multiple wellness surveys then, then, then it's, it's going to drive frustration because it's, it highlights the gap, right? Now you know because of the survey that hospital leadership know, uh, understands the problem, has a potential solution, but then you also know that they're not willing to invest in it. So that's the pathway where I think some of these wellness surveys may have contributed to burnout. It's this idea of asking a question with no um, real um, um, desire to address the problem. Although I think most hospitals really want to, the downside is that um, these investments, this does take an investment and the investments oftentimes don't yield a, an immediate return. Um, there is a positive return. My, my opinion is there will always be a positive return when you invest to reduce burnout, but the investment um, will only pay off in a few years. And so that becomes hard from a budgetary bottom line. And then in terms of, so you've stated that addressing team dynamics may be one of the avenues that we should target. Um, there are a lot of factors contributing to uh, team dynamics, and um, in the qualitative um, surveys that you um, performed, 
Um, there was note of uh, a paternalistic attitude amongst the uh, um, uh, critical care providers. Um, there, was, there were also notes about how sometimes the providers feel that uh, nurses or respiratory therapists are undercutting them um, in speaking to the family. How are you? How would you address that? Um, because it seems as though there's sometimes a generational gap component to what's happening here, and sometimes it's as though um, the two professions or two specialties are uh, heading in totally different directions um, during their training, and that's affecting um, the care that patients are receiving. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I think what. what was maybe not represented in those quotes as well um, that you're referencing is the fact that um, when people mentioned that, I followed up in those interviews and asked them, um, have you told the physicians that you feel this way? And the answer was always no. Um, or has the physicians ever told the nurse that I feel like you're undercutting my decision to transfer this patient out? Um, please explain to me why you think we should keep this patient in the ICU. Or talking to the respiratory therapist and asking, why wasn't this patient put on a wean? And these were the reasons. Oftentimes, what people said is that they would go back to their own group. So if it's a physician workroom or the nurses in their break room, and they would sit there and stew about it, but they would never have that open, free um, conversation with the other providers. So while I do think it's that the education and the goals are sometimes different um, between different provider types. In the end, we all want to provide the best care for the patient. And, um, you know, when I, and I remember a case very recently where I wanted a Foley in a patient and, and come back in two hours and the patient doesn't have a Foley. And I, I, I was annoyed. I'm like, why doesn't this patient have a Foley at this point? And I sat there and waited to get an explanation as opposed to just being like, we need to get this done. And the explanation was completely and totally appropriate that the nurse felt unsafe in putting a Foley into this patient who was extremely agitated um, and had not ha yet had a chance to communicate to the residents that they needed um, more sedation to do that. And once we had that 360 conversation about that patient, in the moment, we created a plan to say, okay, um, and, and this is just a unique situation, but, you know, we're going to, uh, this patient needed some Presidex to not to do to Foley and to do a couple other things, get some scans um, to be able to answer why the patient was so agitated. Um, and, uh, you know, that was um, really critical to all of us understanding why I needed something. The nurse didn't fully understand why the patient needed a Foley. Um, and I didn't fully understand why it didn't happen. But when we talked about it, it yielded a much better solution with a much greater deal of respect in terms of me recognizing that the nurse felt unsafe. And so it wasn't that the, that there were diametrically opposed education pathways. It was that we weren't talking. And I think that um, create, when you create outside of the ICU more open communication lines, and hence I meant dedicated team, build, team building um, events, um, it's easier to have those conversations with less fear of people taking it the wrong way in the moment or in a, in a debrief um, soon after uh, soon after the event. Yeah, I think that case, as you said, highlights the importance of communicating and determining the reason as to why things are happening. Um, Anuj, I wanted to uh, speak about your study methods briefly. This was a multi-sensor mixed methods cohort study. Um, what limitations do you want our listeners to be aware of in terms of uh, interpreting the results? So what should they bear in mind uh, what do you think uh, may have limited uh, the generalizability of your study? And what future studies would need to be done uh, to address these limitations? 
Uh, I think that's a great question. So um, I think that qualitative methods, which are core to mixed methods, um, are, are emerging and they're important in addressing the why to a lot of things that we that are that we know affect medicine and affect patient outcomes. Um, uh, in, in not only in critical care, but across medicine. And so one of the limitations of qualitative work is that we work with smaller sample sizes. Um, the methods are really intense. We conducted individual one-hour interviews with a lot of our participants. And in other moments, we did focus groups, um, and we kind of gave people the option of how they wanted to participate. But that's time-intensive. Um, and so our data set, if you will, was over a thousand patient pages of transcribed um, interviews. And we read through all of them and there's a whole process of how you analyze it. So, but one of the limitations with qualitative work is that it's not entirely generalizable. You try and recruit a diverse field. So you mentioned that the study was uh, multi-center. So we had a community hospital, we had a safety net hospital, and we had a quaternary referral hospital. We had a general medical ICU that had both medical and surgical patients. We had a um, medical ICU in a safety net hospital, and then we had a medical ICU in, in that referral hospital. Um, and so we tried to create a greater diversity in terms of the types of patients and the types of teams that people were interacting with. Um, but, uh, you know, we didn't have um, um, a dedicated surgical ICU. And so... Uh, Translating some of our results to other settings is, is a little bit limited, but, you know, the way we tried to address that was by having as diverse a field of centers, ICU types, and then provider types on top of that. So you diversify your recruitment strategies um, to overcome the fact that in qualitative work with a smaller N, um, you learn um, in the setting where you're doing the interviews, but that um, you may, the in, in unique settings, um, the results may not be fully, fully generalizable. I think there was also when specifically addressing burnout, um, we, uh, when you're doing any burnout study, you're going to recruit people that either feel very strongly that they are not burnt out or feel strongly that they are burnt out. Um, the people that are middle of the road may not want to volunteer um, may not think it's worth their time. And so there's potentially a sampling or selection bias. And this is true of any type of work um, that requires, uh, uh, you know, that investigates burnout or um, investigates system-based issues in a hospital. You're going to get the people that, that feel strongly about it. Um, and then another potential limitation uh, is, is just in this idea of how we map the um, the quantitative results from our survey onto the qualitative themes. Um, it's one of our, it's one of our figures. You know, we try to match which psychological domain of burnout and the, and the corresponding score to the qualitative themes. That is, um, you know, that's all conjecture. That, that's hypothesis generating. Um, there's no core methodology to do that. Although in mixed methods, um, you try and, you try and intertwine what you're getting from the quantitative work with the qualitative work to, uh, yield a far more, more robust understanding of whatever phenomenon, in this case, burnout that you're investigating. Um, so, you know, a different team of investigators may have a, have arrived at slightly different conclusions, but I do think that if even if I gave somebody the thousand pages of data, um, that they would they would still 
um, tend to find very similar um, large large themes across all of the provider types. Um, and this kind of goes back to the limitations lead me to think originally of, you know, what was our hypothesis entering this and why did we do the study, which we haven't touched on? Well, you know, being a critical care provider, I've experienced burnout myself. So I have a personal interest in this study and, and was able to bring on a team of people that um, have similar interests in, in addressing the problem. And, and I recognized that um, the shortcomings of previous the previous work has been the lack of a team-based approach, despite the fact that we recognize that team-based approach in caring for critically ill patients is, 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 is paramount. And so um, what my hypothesis was, was that, um, that we would be able to identify common factors across provider types uh, that contributed to burnout that would potentially be the target of future interventions that would be um, sustainable. And that's something that, you know, we haven't really talked about, but that there are some interventions out there that have shown efficacy at reducing burnout. But after the study, they're never implemented on a wide scale. And I think part of that is because it's only targeted at one group and things within a single group are not sustainable oftentimes because they get reinfected with burnout. Um, so we really focused on the factors that were common across the different provider types, recognizing that that would be more effective given the infectious nature of burnout, but also potentially more cost effective for an institution to implement a single burnout reduction intervention across multiple provider types rather than individual interventions for nurses, and then a different one for physicians, and then a different one um, for respiratory therapists. And we, you know, I, from my own personal experience, had hypothesized that team dynamics might be a driver. And, and this idea of a group-based um, intervention uh, would make a lot of sense um, uh, based on our methodology. So um, I think that, you know, those limitations are, are, are common to most mixed methods. But I think the um, the choice of the methodology was highly appropriate given the given the problem that we're studying. No, I agree. Uh, your methodology was uh, on point. Um, and for those who haven't had a chance to read the article, if you look at tables two, three, and four, um, and read the quotes uh, that are provided, it really gives you a deep insight as to uh, what people are thinking and um, uh, the concerns that they have uh, with the care that they are providing. Um, Anuj, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to our audience today. Um, I do want to ask you about, uh, you, you had mentioned the importance of interventions and um, you highlighted the importance of having um, team building. What other interventions uh, could be implemented um, uh, by uh, hospital institutions, providers uh, to, to uh, mitigate uh, burnout? So I think, and this is all hypothesis generating, I can't say that any of these are going to work, and I think they require a future study, and I think that um, both hospital um, institutions, the NIH, I think everybody should be funding this area actively because it's going to have longstanding impact. Um, but from a patient factor level, I think that um, having increasing the presence of palliative care in the ICU would potentially alleviate some of those futility issues. Um, because even when something may feel futile, when you know that there's a dedicated team working with the families, working with the providers um, to try and address some of those feelings, um, and palliative care is amazing at that, um, oftentimes I think that will reduce sometimes the level of burnout, but that takes an investment to actually have um, somebody from palliative care be present on rounds. 
Um, I think that uh, hospitals doing more to protect their healthcare workers and support their healthcare workers with abusive families obviously would be um, helpful. But then from an intervention perspective around team dynamics, I think, and, and I'm by no means an expert, but I think um, uh, looking at other fields that utilize team building, um, in, um, team building interventions um, to improve efficiency and profitability in, in, in the world of business, um, may, we may learn a lot about the different types of interventions that have proven efficacy that could potentially be adapted to um, the healthcare setting. The complication, complicating factor about the healthcare setting is not everybody can take the same day off, right? You could, in some business settings, potentially say, okay, we're going to do a whole day retreat. Every, nobody's going to show up to the office. We're going to, can't do that in healthcare. But there are ways you could potentially work around that um, with some interesting theories. And I think that the investment would be um, somewhat minimal uh, other than trying to find staffing for the days off that you might have to give people. I also think giving people mental health days in addition to sick days would be useful um, both for patient factors, but also on those team dynamic levels, because it could be something that people take a group together to take together um, to try and build some of those team dynamics. And then I think we need a real conversation about hospital culture and communication between um, hospital leadership and frontline workers. I don't have a specific suggestion around what intervention would fix things there, but I do think that having greater visibility of hospital leadership in settings where they know that there's high burnout to have more frequent short conversations rather than the seminal, okay, I'm going to do a town hall twice a year. I'm the you know, CEO. I'm going to do a town hall twice a year to, to meet with all the nurses in the hospital. And this takes a shift in terms of um, how people schedule their time. They think having shorter more meaningful conversations more frequently would actually potentially, and with, with plans to actually intervene and, and, and address the factors that are that are arising, w- would be very useful. I think that um, the reason we need to be investing in this, and 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 this is what I think is highly unique about burnout. Burnout, in addition to being at epidemic, if not pandemic levels now, um, burnout in healthcare settings is one of the unique things that affects all three levels of the healthcare field. The three levels that I think are really critical are patient um, safety. Um, We know that um, in settings where there's high levels of burnout, we know that patients are impacted, whether it be by near misses, or there's also been some studies of increased error, medication errors um, that can impact patient outcomes. So burnout is bad for patients. We know that burnout is bad for providers. It not only causes um, physical ailments, but it dramatically increases the rates of substance abuse and suicide amongst um, um, healthcare providers. And we unfortunately saw that during the pandemic. And burnout is bad for healthcare systems. It leads to lower patient satisfaction scores, which we know, while not important for a lot of healthcare providers, healthcare institutions live and die by patient satisfaction scores a lot of times. So it negatively affects those. And it also leads to dramatically increased job turnover, which is extremely expensive um, for uh, for um, healthcare institutions to deal with, um, especially on the physician and nurse side of it. And, and that's only gotten harder now in the setting of our staffing shortages uh, that, um, you know, a single person leaving the field or leaving a hospital because of high burnout um, can be devastating and very costly. So patient, provider, and healthcare system, burnout affects all three of them. It's unique. It's one of the unique things that can actually do that across all three um, levels of the healthcare, um, uh, of healthcare. And investing in the intervention, as I mentioned, and doing research to identify new interventions that are effective 
and critically sustainable um, in the long term, I think is where we need to be um, investing a lot of our research dollars. I know, I think you did an absolutely fantastic job with highlighting the importance of burnout and laying out the argument for why both research institutions and healthcare institutions need to focus on this in a big way. Um, a very big thank you to Anuj for a very great conversation. A big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast. <laughs>